Organissima New York. Your exotic skin, hair, and beauty source, and your one-stop shop for all your natural and organic skin and hair care. Featuring authentic organic Moroccan oil and prickly pear seed oil and much more. Bringing you only the best, straight from the source and proudly produced in the USA. So what are you waiting for? Shop today. Arganissima, New York. Your beauty is our duty. Folks, welcome back to the iHealth channel, iHealth Radio. We're your host, Hurricane Age. New day, new show, new topic. Uh, great topic. Must watch topic. Perfect timing topic. Uh, we are in the uh, pretty much the last day of uh, last days of June, and uh, that leads into July, which is Fibroid Awareness Month. Uterine fibroid uh, uh, discussion is a must. And uh, with me today, I have a specialist who actually uh, is a doctor that that treats this, that works with this, that provides awareness on this. And um, so without any further ado, I have with me Dr. John Fisher from the Fibroid Institute of Houston. Uh, doctor, welcome to the show. Thank you, Hurricane. Appreciate you having me. Oh, my pleasure. I know you and I, we met a few months back. Uh, it's last year. <laughs> and we had yeah. a, a brief discussion. I saw you in action doing your work in the community, doing, you know, the awareness part. And uh, and I was personally impressed. You know, you had a nice setup and uh, uh, you were there by yourself and doing the work. And that was something exciting to see. I love that. Uh, I personally, I just want to uh, thank you for doing that because uh, there, are, there are different types of doctors out there. Not everybody is willing to actually go in the community and do the work and deliver and uh, and provides the instructions or at least the guidance and the, the education live. And you're doing this as well. And I, I have to thank all the doctors actually that come on the shows because that's what they do. And their mission is not only just to provide service, but also uh, provide education uh, to the world and specifically to the folks in their communities. So well, I appreciate welcome. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, I've always taken a very personal approach to uh, fibroid embolization or treating uterine fibroids with embolization. Um, I think education is a very strong component of any medical procedure, but especially this one, because uh, a lot of women don't know about their options. And, you know, there are just so many options, including uterine fibroid embolization, the procedure I do, but a lot of other options out there. So it's just a matter of educating. And I think as uh, physicians, most of us do a really strong job at treating uh, either through medication or procedures or surgeries. Uh, but where I feel that many of us fall short is on the educational part and really informing patients. And I've always taken a, a very personal and, and very heartfelt approach to uh, education and educating patients and, and outreach in the community. Again, that, again, I, I commend you for doing that. That is that is the highest level. Uh, and um, you're delivering services. You're delivering, you know, information and educating people about this whole thing, right? But so, so I know I have a question that that I just need to get out of the system here. Why specifically this specialty? Uh, and is it like an OBGYN, you know, concept? So it it is a gynecologic problem. Uh, uterine fibroids are just benign muscle tumors of the uterus, and they are extremely common. Uh, it's estimated that. 70% of all women will have fibroids at some point in their lives, actually over 80% of black women. So the African-American community is disproportionately affected by 
uh, fibroids. Uh, fortunately, the vast majority of women with fibroids never know that they have them because they never cause any symptoms. But about 25% of women develop symptoms. The symptoms can be quite debilitating and really alter a person's life and ability to do normal activities and normal things and having to plan their day around some of their female issues. So, um, you know, I'm actually not a gynecologist. I'm what's called an interventional radiologist, which I think my own mom probably can't even explain what, what it is that I do. Uh, but interventional radiology is a very cutting edge uh, specialty that is basically image guided, uh, minimally invasive surgery. So when I was in the hospital and I was at St. Luke's Hospital in the Texas Medical Center for 21 years and while there, I, I did all kinds of procedures, but the common denominator to all of the procedures that we do in interventional radiology is that we don't cut patients open to do them. We do them through minimally invasive means, and we use image guidance, whether that be x-rays or CAT scan or ultrasound or MRI to guide those procedures. Because since we don't cut patients open, we have to be able to see what we're doing. And so uterine fibroid embolization is one of those procedures that I did. It's really been a passion of mine since the very early part of my career. Um, it's something that I've uh, really had a special interest and spe special expertise in uh, since I did my first case 23 years ago. And uh, so while I did a lot of other things when I was at St. Luke's Hospital and on uh, faculty at Baylor College of Medicine, this has always been my niche, uh, what I really enjoyed doing. And I just find it very gratifying because of the um, success in treating patients with this technique. Uh, it's it's really become um, a passion of mine. So uh, it really got difficult to provide the type of care, efficiency of care, uh, really overall quality of care. It got more and more difficult to do in the hospital. That combined with the evolution of the procedure to where we could do the the procedure completely outpatient out of the office and send patients home the very same day, just a couple of hours after the procedure, uh, really uh, prompted me to start this practice, which was a little less than a year ago, about nine months ago. Um, and so now I think that we're able to do uh, much better than we've ever been able to do for patients. And that's really what it's all about. Well, doctor, I, I have to say, I mean, I to be honest with you, I... The closest, I mean, I'm in healthcare as well and the insurance and we obviously OBGYN, you know, concepts are part of what we cover insurance. So we have doctors, we have nurses. Uh, I've worked also in a hospital settings. So it's, uh, and, and again, I have, I'm surrounded by women, my family, so, you know, my mom, my daughter, my wife. And, and so it's always important to know these things as a person, you know, uh, and also as, as a, uh, just in the career path. Right. And fibroid is not something or urine fibroid, you know, uh, it's not something I've I've actually was made aware of, known of, and to your point, I, I haven't heard my wife talk about it or even people around my circles talking about it. I don't even remember seeing a clinic other than the first time seeing you. Uh, so 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 is that a common practice? Well, you know, like I said, uterine fibroids are very common, but you know, patients often don't feel comfortable discussing it with family, friends, some of the female problems. So it's not in not always some do, but but many uh, do what we call suffer in silence, uh, and they may discuss it with their gynecologist uh, or their medical doctor and their primary care physician, uh, but they may not like the options that they're given. I mean, they're 
you know, historically the treatment for fibroids is a hysterectomy or open surgery, what we call a myomectomy, where they uh, remove the fibroids from the uterus, but leave the uterus behind, or a hysterectomy where they remove the entire uterus. And so many patients don't like those options because of the recovery time associated. Many, you know, women can't be down and out of work or out of their normal daily routine or activities for four to six weeks during recovery from surgery. So this is an option, a less invasive option that is a very good option for many, not all patients, but many patients that offers a shorter recovery time, um, less invasive means, so no scars or you know uh, incisions, uh, surgical incisions. So it, it's a very attractive option, but the challenge since I started doing this procedure 23 years ago, and I've done thousands of these procedures, uh, over 3,000, um, is always been to educate the public. And like I said, I've always taken education very, uh, you know, close to my heart. And, you know, that that education is on two levels. It's educating uh, the general public and women about their options so that more and more know about not only the uterine fibroid embolization, but other less invasive uh, surgical means for treatment of uterine fibroids. Uh, and at the same time, educating some of my referring doctors, both gynecologists and primary care physicians about, you know, who benefits and who may not benefit from this type of a procedure. So education is really a two-pronged thing. It's it's at the physician level, physician to physician level, and also uh, direct to the uh, the public and, and women who's, who may suffer from fibroids so that they don't have to suffer in silence. Well, thank you, doctor. So a few things. I, I know you mentioned they're kind of ulcers or tumors, right? If, you know, now, uh, can those, I'm assuming benign and not malignant, or can they turn into like cancerous, you know, and more dangerous levels? So, uh, uterine fibroids are just benign muscle tumors of the uterus. Okay. They, uh, there are very, very rare reports of malignant degeneration of fibroids, but most people will go their entire career and never see this. Uh, but it is at least in theory possible and has been reported. Uh, but the vast majority are just benign tumors of the uterus. So they don't cause any trouble as far as like cancer, but the symptoms that they can cause can be quite debilitating for women. And so I'm happy to review some of those symptoms or at least the common symptoms. So patients know what to look out for, but, uh, that's my like next question. <laughs> sure. You know, what what are we looking for here in terms of symptoms? Sure. So, you know, when a woman like like I said, most women with fibroids never know that they have them. They may be diagnosed incidentally when they have a CAT scan or an ultrasound for another problem, or many times patients are diagnosed when they have their OB ultrasounds when they're pregnant, and their doctor will say, Hey, you have a you know small fibroid or benign muscle tumor in your uterus. Uh, but they're not causing any problems. So, you know, we, if I like to say when, if, unless fibroids are bothering a patient, we don't bother them. So we don't treat asymptomatic patients. And I've always said, it's very hard to make an asymptomatic patient better. Uh, so generally speaking, if, if they're not bothering a patient, we don't treat uh, with embolization or, or really anything else, but common symptoms uh, that patients uh, experience as a result of fibroids, the natural history of fibroids is that they tend to grow slowly over time. There are exceptions to that, like when the hormone levels are higher, as like during pregnancy, or if a patient's taking exogenous hormones, they can grow 
at a much more rapid rate. But typically they grow uh, maybe a centimeter or less, slightly less per year. And the larger the fibroids get, the more symptoms they tend to cause. And so when a woman starts experiencing symptoms from her fibroids, those fibroid symptoms usually fall into one of two categories. Uh, there are the bleeding symptoms, which are heavy menstrual cycles, prolonged menstrual cycles associated with very heavy flow, uh, oftentimes in you know blood clots, uh, and in more severe cases, uh, resulting in anemia or low blood counts. And in very severe cases, even the need for a blood transfusion. Fortunately, that's fairly uncommon, but not as uncommon as you might think. Um, and then the other types of symptoms that fibroids can cause are related to the size or the weight or the density of the fibroids. Since fibroids are made of muscle tissue, muscle tissue is a very heavy, very hard, very dense tissue. So as the fibroids grow, or even if you get multiple smaller fibroids enlarging the uterus, it's much like when a woman's pregnant. So the enlarged uterus or the big fibroids start pushing on all the other structures around it in the pelvis and can cause things like frequent urination, uh, pelvic pain, pelvic pressure, back pain, constipation, uh, painful sex. Uh, there's a lot of what we refer to as bulk symptoms. And then many patients have both bleeding and bulk symptoms, but usually one or the other kind of predominates in most patients. So, but, you know, we can treat both bleeding and bulk symptoms successfully with this procedure, again, in properly selected patients. Thank you, Doc. So, so I, I want to go back to just, I know you answered the question about the cancer, which is an awesome <laughs> response. In fact, that it's, it's at least not as, as bad. And all, I mean, there has been cases, but to your point, uh, the general matter is that this is not as malignant, so it's not as as dangerous, but it is definitely painful. Uh, definitely something that you know someone should, uh, I guess, take care of and eliminate if they could, and hopefully with a procedure that's less invasive and and no surgery involved. Uh, because when you mentioned uh, you know taking off the the uterus as, as as a solution, I mean that sounds pretty brutal. I mean you hear that in in, in oncology, but you don't hear in in more benign uh, more uh, benign stuff. And and so I just wanted to to address that part because you don't have to go through that you know uh, immediate that I mean I'm I'm not a woman but I, I have actually known women who have done those procedures where they had to remove uh, the uterus and and that is not a fun uh, experience to to hear it from them at least to see them going through that process. Sure, yeah, I mean you know hysterectomies are very common. Um, you know it's. Uh, they're, they're a very common surgery. Uh, they're done for various means, but uh, fibroids are a very common uh, reason why patients have a hysterectomy is related to fibroids and the symptoms that they cause. And, you know, it's still the best answer for some patients, um, but like everything, including the UFE procedure, it, it's, you know, surgery is not for everybody. And so, um, you know, and there's, it is a, a major surgery with a significant, you know, at least four to six weeks complete recovery time, uh, as I mentioned. So, you know, the good news is, is that patients have more options today than they've ever had before. And there are less invasive surgical techniques that I don't do, but I've come to know a lot about through my gynecologic colleagues. There are, there are better drugs and medications out with you know, both hormonal and non-hormonal uh, to control symptoms related to fibroids, both the bleeding and the bulk symptoms with more medications coming out all the time. Um, there are 
you know, all kinds of options and options for patients are always good, but UFE and uterine fibrodimbolization is just one of the many options. And so it's a matter of, you know, picking the right option for the right patient. Like I tell patients all the time, the way I view this is I just view it as uh, all of these options, both the UFE procedure that I do, the less invasive surgeries, the drugs and medications, I just see them all as tools in the fibroid toolbox. And, you know, it's like going to your garage. You don't go to the garage and grab a hammer for every job around the house, right? We grab the right tool, the one that's gonna give us uh, the result that we're looking for. Um, and so it's much the same approach is that I realize no, not one option, including my own procedure is the best for every patient, but um, many patients it is. And the good news is that patients do have options. And so that's why I feel that the ed educational part of this is so important because the more a patient knows about the different options, the better decision she can make for herself. And that, that's something I feel very strongly about. Well, I, I appreciate that, Doc. And, and and you know what? It is important to point in, to know all your options at all times. And, and it, we do that in everything in our lives, right? Uh, and right. health is the most important one. And we definitely want to know what's available out there. Uh, and again, lack of education can uh, limit, you know, those options. And therefore, you might just go to the, the first thing could be surgery and uh, it may not be the ideal one. And uh, some, the, the sad part would be like to do a surgery and eventually find out you could have done it without it. And that would be like a very not happy, you know, outcome in terms of your psyche and your relationship and life and everything. So that could be very detrimental. So it's important. So, so doctor, you talked about the different types of symptoms. And now, are they types of fibroids, you know, or, uh, you know, specific types? Or well, all... the, sure. So there are certain types of fibroids categorized primarily by the location in the uterus. So some fibroids are like on the inside part of the uterus, maybe even bulging into the, or maybe sometimes completely contained within the inner cavity or what we call the endometrial cavity of the uterus, which is the inner cavity of the uterus where the where the baby grows like during the pregnancy. And then there are some fibroids that are completely contained within the muscular wall of the uterus. So those are what we refer to as intramural fibroids. And then there are certain fibroids that are more on the outside part of the uterus. And we refer to these as subserosal fibroids. Uh, and then there are fibroids that actually hang from the outside of the uterus via a stem or a stalk, much like a, a cherry on a stem, so to speak. And we call these uh, pedunculated fibroids. So yes, fibroids are characterized or categorized primarily by their location in the uterus. And the location really makes a pretty significant difference in the types of symptoms that they cause. So any fibroid that is associated, touches, contained within the inner cavity or the endometrial cavity of the uterus is much more likely to cause heavy bleeding and they don't have to be very large to do so. Uh, and that makes sense because it's that inner cavity lining that is sloughed off every month during a woman's menstrual cycle. Uh, fibroids that are within the wall of the uterus and not associated with the cavity or on the outside of the uterus, they can cause heavier bleeding as well, but more indirectly because fibroids tend to be very vascular uh, benign tumors. And so, they tend to draw a lot of blood into the uterus. And the more blood that there's available, the more potential bleeding during a woman's monthly cycle. Um, but typically the fibroids within the wall or on the outside are more likely to cause the bulk symptoms that we talked about, the pelvic pressure, pelvic pain, 
uh, frequent urination or urinary symptoms, urgency. Um, but so there is, you know, this categorization of fibroids uh, based mostly on location. And not only does it, you know, uh, predetermine many times what types of, of symptoms the fibroids are more likely to cause, uh, but as you know, it's one of the very important things that we take into account in determining what the best treatment option or options are for any given patient. Size, number, location of the fibroids, number of fibroids within the uterus. These are all very important things uh, to look at. So, Doctor, you, you alluded earlier that one of the times where they're discovered is during pregnancy, for example. Now, is there, do they cause any risk to a pregnancy for someone who may be expected? It's a great question. And um, the short answer is yes, fibroids can lead to higher rates of miscarriage or lost pregnancies, um, especially the ones that are, again, associated with that inner cavity where implantation occurs of the embryo. So um, anything that interferes with that implantation or you know, kind of early development of the uh, of the fetus can result in a higher risk of miscarriage. So certainly, certain fibroids can cause higher risk of miscarriage. Um, large fibroids, even if not associated with the inner cavity, can also affect a pregnancy just because of, of their size and you know pushing on the fetus and on the on the uterus. So they can indirect in that way. So. Yes, fibroids can affect pregnancy in, in those ways, um, but there are majority of women with fibroids, um, you know, that are discovered at the time of pregnancy have a, a, a fairly uneventful pregnancy. They deliver the child without a problem. They can also affect delivery. That's the other part that they can affect in terms of the uh, fetus's ability to pass uh, for a vaginal delivery. Um, but all of these are possibilities, but the I think the majority of women with fibroids that are diagnosed incidentally at pregnancy, um, it, you know, their pregnancies go fairly unremarkable, don't have any issue with the fibroids. But it's a very common story that we hear, you know, since fibroids are hormonally dependent and tend to grow more quickly during pregnancy, I, it's not an uncommon story that we hear a patient say, I never knew I had fibroids. I had the obstetrical ultrasound or sonogram at the time when I was pregnant. They said I had a fibroid. It grew fairly rapidly during pregnancy. I had my child. Everything went fine. Delivered my child, and boom! Now all of a sudden, I have all of these symptoms. So that's a that's a very common story. So, so doctor, the you mentioned earlier about the uh, I guess the African American community or Black community as having a higher risk. Is there a genetic predisposal to having fibroids? Is there an age group that is actually more at risk than other? Sure, absolutely. There, there is one hundred percent a genetic component to fibroids. Uh, so, if a woman of any race, um, if her mother or sister or first degree relative has had fibroids, she's at much higher risk even than the general population of having fibroids. And um, like I said a moment ago, it's estimated that 70% of all women, regardless of race, uh, have uterine fibroids, but a majority fortunately remain asymptomatic. Uh, but yes, the black uh, or African American community is disproportionately affected by fibroids because they're 
80% or greater. Um, again, majority remain asymptomatic, uh, but it's a problem for all women, for sure. But how about age? I mean, you mentioned that, that women can have the whole life and, and they can have them, but asymptomatic, so nothing is clear. But is there a particular age where that is more, you know, a higher risk or higher percentage of the, the, the population that does, uh, I guess, show with symptoms? Sure. The While fibroids can develop earlier, I've seen women in their 20s uh, develop fibroids. This is relatively uncommon for a 20-year-old uh, to have significant symptoms related to her fibroids. The majority of fibroids that we see, especially those that are asymptomatic or women in their late 30s or 40s, that's kind of the peak age group, uh, maybe 35 to 50. Um, fortunately, after menopause, uh, when a woman reaches menopause, which every woman's different, some women go through menopause earlier, some later. Again, there's a genetic predisposition to that age, uh, but the average age of menopause for most women is early 50s, maybe 50, 52. Uh, so when a woman goes through menopause and her, her hormone levels or estrogen levels shrink, the fibroids will shrink and die on their own. So, and new fibroids will not form in part because uh, they're dependent on the hormones to develop and to live. So it's, menopause is a process. And so during that menopausal process, which can take months, maybe even years for a woman to complete, uh, fibroids can remain symptomatic, but eventually they will shrink and die on their own and their symptoms will go away after a woman completes uh, menopause. So, so you talked about hormones as as a key trigger. Now, for someone who has thyroid issues, and and it's pretty common, um, would that increase or decrease the chance of having fibroids by any chance? Thyroid hormones, um, not no, not no effect necessarily on fibroids. It's more like the female hormones, like the estrogens, uh, things like that. Not thyroid. It's not metabolic, you know, stuff. It's it's really just the. The female, uh, you know, uh, hormone specifically, correct. Which is yeah, which is why they tend to grow more rapidly when the hormone levels are high, like during pregnancy, or if someone's taking exogenous hormones or hormone replacement. And the same reason why they shrink and die on their own after menopause when those hormone levels go down. So then, then let's talk about the the big elephant, I guess, in the room. I mean, uh, with I guess uh, you know that. I guess in in today's society, sex is is a predominantly you know a, a regular activity, and um, you know there are a lot of means of I guess uh, precautionary means you know f against pregnancies, and there's a lot of you know pills with hormones based, and even uh, you know, there's like uh, the uh, what do you call it? Uh, other means that actually uh, prevent, such as the I forgot the name now. You, um, like an IUD? IUDs, there you go. That's the, that, that's the, so the IUDs with hormones, I mean, that's that's another one. Now, it seems that those are pretty much can literally, you know, uh, have a direct impact on having fibroids. And so would would you recommend <laughs> those or not recommend them based on the, the outcomes? I mean, again, um, it's a question that someone's going to ask, and especially, you know, if they do utilize those. That's a great question. You know, um, there's a give and take or a push and pull with hormones and fibroids. So you're absolutely right. Depending on the uh, formulation of certain birth control pills with high estrogen contents and things like that, they can certainly 
lead to uh, more rapid growth of fibroids, certain hormone uh, replacements and so forth. On the other hand, uh, one of the treatments for fibroids and helping to control symptoms are something as simple as hormone therapy, like a birth control pill. Um, usually something with a, you know, a lower estrogen level, but, uh, you know, can, can be very effective in reducing symptoms in some patients and is oftentimes uh, the first line treatment that a patient may be placed on by her gynecologist. Um, IUDs uh, can be, especially those that have uh, hormones in them, uh, can be used to help control symptoms, the heavy bleeding related to fibroids, and can be quite effective in some patients as well. So these are all kind of early uh, treatment options that many patients have. Uh, when I said earlier that, you know, drugs and medications can control symptoms, uh, that's where the hormones falls. There are all types of hormones from oral, like I said, simple oral contraceptive type hormones that can be used to control symptoms, all the way to more aggressive hormone therapy uh, with uh, GnRH agonists, which are shots like Lupron or Depo, Depo-Provera, uh, that can basically induce a uh, pharmacologic menopause in a patient uh, and can be very effective in reducing uh, fibroid growth and, and promoting uh, the shrinkage of fibroids um, and reducing their blood supply. Uh, but the effects of most of the drugs and hormones and medications, uh, most of the time they are temporary. So that's one of the downsides is, you know, many of these things can be used for some period of time, but many, as soon as you stop whatever treatment that you're doing uh, from a, you know, hormone or drug level, most of the time the symptoms will return. Um, so, it's for those reasons that the hormonal therapies, the medication therapies tend to be more temporary solutions or stopgap type solutions to help control a woman's symptoms until we can figure out a longer term solution. And then many hormone therapies, not all, but many, especially some of the more aggressive ones have uh, significant side effects, uh, some of the menopausal type symptoms. So that aren't real pleasant for some patients as well. So, uh, you know, Again, I tell patients all the time, there are pros and cons to every treatment option. Um, you can't get away from that. Uh, so it's just a matter of trying to pick the best treatment for each patient, which has the most uh, advantages and the fewest disadvantages and the lowest risks. And that's really what we're setting out to do each and every time we sit down with a patient. Uh, and, you know, if, if they're a good candidate for the fibroid embolization procedure, that's fantastic. But if they're better treated, uh, with something else, I'm going to tell them as much. So, well, yeah, but doctor, I, I, thank you for breaking it down. I mean, I love it. I mean, we we have the whole picture, but but the concept is that it, it sounds like those are like symptom, you know, treatments, uh, or just you know, kind of uh, you can live with it as long as you have a treatment, you don't feel it. It's like having a Tylenol for your headache and you know, or pain, and you kind of bypass it and you feel good. But it's not really taking care of the, the real problem. I mean, ultimately, a, a solution will be to eliminate those fibroids and therefore Correct. either surgery or to you or to a minimum uh, invasive you know, solution such as your procedure. And those will be like you know, the outcomes that probably would be more, I mean, ideal. But people have to make that choice, of course. Right. And it depends on many factors. Again, there are a lot of things that we look at. I mean, how severe are patient symptoms? How old is she? Um, you know, what future fertility desires that she has, you know, what, what, if any other medical problems that she has, um, 
you know, what's her surgical risk? I mean, there are just so many factors that we look at in trying to make that determination. Uh, it's it's not a one size fits all, that's for sure. Um, but like I said earlier, uh, the good news is that patients have many more options today than they've had in the past. And options for patients are always a good thing. It's just that, you know, and it's not necessarily the fault of physicians in general. I mean, everybody's stretched for time. Everybody doesn't have the uh, time necessarily to spend with patients to educate in the way that I really feel like that we should. Um, it's one of the things that I love about my current position and practice is, you know, no longer being in the hospital and pulled five different directions. Um, I feel like I really have uh, the time needed to spend with patients to really explore their symptoms and explore the different pros and cons and explain and educate. And that's, like I said, that's a very important part of all of this. Thank you, Doc. And 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 by the way, uh, again, when I met you, it was a, a weekend. So you actually do, <laughs> you know, uh, what most other doctors probably would not do, to, you know, because to your point, they're probably called into hospital settings and things like that. And you're doing that on an additional time, which is, again, going beyond the call of duty to make it happen. And you are providing the education. So I, I, I want to go back to one question. We talked about risk for pregnancy, but what about risk for fertility? Is there uh, a link to that? Sure. So uh, you mean fertility right. as a result of fibroids or as, as, a, as a result of the fibroid embolization procedure that I do or both? I guess both. <laughs> you, okay. you went ahead on the other one, but that's good. <laughs> so, um, so yes, I mean, you know, Fibroids can affect fertility by the ways I stated earlier, by um, interfering with normal implantation and early growth of the embryo or fetus and can lead to higher risks of miscarriages. So that certainly can affect certain, again, the ones typically on the inside lining of the uterus, the submucosal fibroids, the intracavitary fibroids. Um, and then as far as our procedure, so there are just some unknowns uh, with uterine fibroid embolization in terms of uh, future fertility and pregnancy. So if a patient has a desire to maintain or potential desire to maintain fertility, we just have to be on the same page and, and have a discussion about what we do and what we don't know about future fertility and pregnancy after a UFE procedure. And what we do know is that it is very possible to get pregnant and have a normal child, uh, normal pregnancy, after a UFE. Um, it's been reported hundreds of times in the medical literature. Uh, it's probably thousands more cases that have not been reported, in, including uh, quite a few of my own patients over the years. Um, but what we don't know is whether there's any increased risks of infertility, complications of pregnancy, uh, birth defects, any of those sorts of things in a pregnancy after a UFE procedure. And um, no one's ever shown that there are. No one's ever shown that there are not. So there, that's why I'm saying there's just some unknowns. Um, so again, those factors are an important part of our determination on which patients are a good candidate for our procedure, which patients are better served by something, you know, another treatment option that we don't do that their gynecologist has to offer. So it's all part of the determination and, and a very important part of that. Thank you, Doc. Now, um, you talked about the symptoms and, and, you know, what they look like. But now, if someone doesn't have any, should they be looking to just double check to make sure that they're not, 
because like, early prevention is like everything else, right? You want to be detecting things before it's too late. If you're having symptoms, you're already like at a different stage. What What is the recommendation there? Well, like I said, we don't treat patients who are asymptomatic. So routine screening is really not um, really indicated or something that we recommend or that's necessary. But, you know, it's important for patients to understand the types of symptoms that fibroids can cause so that when they start having these symptoms, they can recognize them early uh, because generally speaking, the larger the fibroids get and the larger the uterus gets, the fewer treatment options are available to a patient. So I encourage patients, the best time to be treated is as soon as you start having significant symptoms, because it's at that point that you have the most treatment options available to you. At some point, the fibroids or the uterus get so large that the UFE procedure, the less invasive surgical options are all off the table. And your only option is open surgery or traditional surgery. Um, and that's why um, it's so important to educate these so that we get, you know, the options out to patients that are, uh, you know, suffering in silence because they don't like the initial treatment options that they were offered. I was going to ask, like, how big those things can can get. I mean, I'm I'm assuming, you know, if people don't pay attention, I mean, I mean, think about it. Some some people they realize they're pregnant, you know, in month sixty days later, right? Whatever, and that could right. be time to grow something big enough that you might confuse, <laughs> and that could oh, be yeah. a challenge. Yeah, I mean, fibroids can get quite large. Um, the majority of fibroids that we see and treat are between uh, one and 10 centimeters. We can treat fibroids a little bit bigger than that, but between one and 10 centimeters is probably 90 plus percent of what we see and treat. Uh, but fibroids can get, I mean, the size of basketballs. I mean, they're, they can get quite large. Um, and, you know, 10 centimeter fibroid is roughly the size of like, a, um, you know, like maybe a small cantaloupe or a grapefruit, something like that. That is that 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 will definitely stand out. I mean, you know, yeah. it, at that point, it's going to be now. Now, and you can still treat those with the minimal and you know, with UFE. Yes, uh, at ten centimeters, you know, that's definitely at the higher end of what we treat, uh, but still treatable. Uh, again, depending on a patient's symptoms, uh, but you know, it's not just the UFE procedure that's limited by size. It's some of the less invasive surgical options that I haven't really talked in detail about, but there are, you know, some newer, less invasive surgical options uh, for treatment of fibroids. So uh, things like robotic surgery, uh, laparoscopic surgery, where they make puncture holes in the abdomen. So they're smaller incisions uh, associated with a much shorter recovery time, you know, rather than four to six weeks total recovery, it's about half that, like two to three weeks for most patients. Um, and they can do hysterectomies this way, where they remove the uterus laparoscopically or robotically. They can do it uh, in, a, you know, uh, myomectomies where they cut the fibroids out. They can do it uh, robotically, laparoscopically, or even hysteroscopically, which is a transvaginal approach uh, without any incisions at all. So, again, at some point, the fibroids reach a size where none of these are options anymore, and the UFE is not an option. And unfortunately, at that point, the only option is open surgery. So it is important that as soon as a patient, you know, recognizes the symptoms and get treated uh, early on, as soon as they start developing su significant symptoms, because it's at that point that they have the most options available to them. Thus, the, the importance of education, because if you don't know, you're not going to know until it's too late. So we want to make sure people are aware. 
So I, I don't know how many of your listeners actually know what UFE is, I mean, or what uterine fibroid embolization is. Um, so, you know, I kind of talked about it very generically, but I'd love to go through the, some more details of the procedure. Um, sure, please. The, uh, so embolization is just a fancy name that means cutting off the blood supply to something. So when we do uterine fibroid embolization, uh, in summary, what we're doing is we're just going inside and cutting off the blood supply to the fibroids, and we cause them to shrink and die. Uh, in a nutshell, that's what we're doing. And the way that we do that is not by cutting a patient open to do it, but we work through tiny puncture holes. But since we're attacking the blood supply, we first have to gain access to that blood supply. And we do that through a tiny puncture hole into the artery, not even big enough for a stitch. It's just a tiny little puncture hole. And usually uh, we're doing that through what's called the radial artery, which is a tiny puncture hole in the left wrist, like right here. And historically, we've done the procedure through the femoral artery, much like a heart catheterization type procedure, uh, which is the artery at the top of the leg, kind of where the leg meets the body right there in that crease. And so we still do some that way as well. Uh, I really give the patient options and like everything, there's pros and cons to both. But when we talk through those options, most patients uh, prefer the radial access, which is kind of the newer technique. Um, tends to be more comfortable, allows patients to get up and move around faster after the procedure. Uh, but we can do it either way, and I've done many both ways. But once we gain access to the blood supply, whether it be through the wrist or through the top of the leg, uh, we use an x-ray camera to guide a tiny, tiny tube through the arterial system and into the blood supply to the fibroids. And once we have the tube within the blood supply to the fibroids, we inject these tiny little particles uh, we use two different types. We use embosphere and PVA or polyvinyl alcohol. And we inject these tiny particles into the blood vessel feeding the fibroid or fibroids. And these tiny particles get carried by the blood flow into the smaller and smaller branches of the arteries feeding the fibroids until eventually they reach a tiny blood vessel that is smaller than they are. So these tiny particles get blocked, you know, stuck. They're too big. They can't go forward so they don't circulate in your body. That's a very common question. They get trapped in the fibroids and they block off all the tiny blood vessels feeding them. So that that's how we shut down the blood supply to the fibroids is by infusing enough of these tiny particles that it blocks off all the blood supply to the fibroids. Um, the procedure is done as an outpatient procedure. We do the procedure at our office uh, in Katy. Um, we have other clinics around town that we can see patients in, but all of our procedures are done in Katy. Um, the procedure usually takes about one hour. Uh, during the procedure, we have a full-time uh, CRNA present who will provide uh, a deep IV sedation for patients, so they won't remember any part of the procedure. So it's, it's very comforting. Um, and then as soon as the patient wakes up from the anesthetic and their puncture site looks good, uh, they go home typically within an hour or so of the procedure, they're on their way home. So, uh, and we can do this very efficiently and very effectively for many patients, but um, that's that's how we do the procedure basically. And then the over time, over the course of several months, the fibroids will shrink an average of about 50%. And they also change in their composition. So fibroids are made of muscle tissue and muscle tissue is a very heavy, very hard, very dense tissue. So after we embolize them, not only do they shrink, but they change from that heavy, dense, hard muscle tissue to a much lighter, softer, spongy type 
scar tissue. And so the combination of the reduction in size of the fibroids and their change in their composition is what leads to symptom relief in over 90% of patients. And then patients go home, have very few uh, limitations, uh, and they completely recover within about seven to, seven to 10 days or about one week after the procedure, they're completely back to normal and back to their normal activities. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's marvelous. I mean, just, to, to, I'm, I was like literally picturing the whole thing, like doing a, a visual effect in my brains here on, on, I mean, I, I would love to see a 3d, like, you know, one of those uh, 3d demos of it, you know, going through it. Maybe there's one out there. I don't know. I'll, I'll have to find one. But you can, you can find it. There's, there's some uh, 3d, like uh, kind of animations. Of yes, exactly. On, yeah. Yeah. On YouTube. They're out there. All right, good. So I'll, I'll attach yeah. it, you know, that, that, that would yeah. be cool to, to, to show people, but, but, you know, doctor, thank you for breaking it down. Cause I mean, uh, the one thing you mentioned, uh, you said sedation, so they're not fully, uh, under an anesthesia, you know, status where they're in tube and all stuff. It's more just, uh, where you're kind of groggy, you don't know anything. And then you just wake up. <laughs> Am I exactly. It's, it's not a traditional general anesthetic where you have a breathing tube or you're on a breathing machine. They're breathing on their own. Uh, but they're uh, sedated enough that they won't remember any far part of the procedure. So it's just a deep IV sedation, uh, much like they provide for endoscopy or colonoscopy. It's very much the same. All right, perfect. I, again, and that's a sometimes that's a big question. Like, oh, I don't want to go under, you know, and and you know, people are afraid and whatever. Uh, when it you hear that this is not that kind of thing, you know, people are probably more open to the procedure at any given point. Sure. I mean, Sure. And in returns, uh, in, in regards to recovery time after the procedure, uh, as I said, the average complete recovery is about seven to 10 days. Um, I can tell you that the hardest part of the entire uh, process or procedure, historically, what's been the most difficult symptom to control after the procedure has been the pelvic pain that many women have after embolization. I have patients tell me all the time that this pelvic pain kind of scared them away because they get online and they read about all these patients' experiences with severe pain after the procedure. Now, the pain is really just um, the body's natural response to cutting off the blood supply to the fibroids. It's the body's warning signal, so to speak. It's the same reason that patients with heart attacks, when the blood supply to the heart gets compromised, they get chest pain. Um, and so it's it's much like that. Um, and every patient's different. So some have more severe pain, some have less severe, but in general, uh, majority of the time, the pain is, can be fairly significant for most patients. Now, when I was doing the procedure out of the hospitals, we would, you know, the traditional way of doing the procedure was to admit everybody, every, every patient over overnight for pain control and give them high doses of narcotics, maybe put them on a pain pump and then send them home the next day on a variety of pain medications. But we have some, unbelievable cutting edge pain control techniques that we're using so that most of our patients uh, go home an hour or so after the procedure pain-free or with very, very mild pain. And most don't even have to take any narcotics, uh, oral narcotics at home. And even those that do have to take a narcotic here or there, it's usually uh, just very sporadic. Um, so, you know, I encourage patients, if you get online to read about the procedure, and you read about some of the pain that patients report, our patients don't have that experience. Uh, and it's because of these cutting edge uh, pain techniques, uh, pain control techniques that we use. Um, and, and really the procedures evolved 
to a point where, uh, uh, you know, patients still have some pain, but it's nothing like uh, historically uh, what what we've had to, you know, what they've had to deal with or what, what they've had to face. Well, technically, I mean, it's still, they, they come to you for a solution from uh, severe pain and all these other symptoms that are actually creating right. that in the first place for long term, uh, you know, so, so this is a temporary and eventually it goes away. And I, I love what you said. I mean, I think I, I love the, the way you clarified it, that your procedure and, and the way you do it, it's really eliminating most of that. And therefore it's a lot easier. So it makes people feel at ease. And so that's important to hear. I mean, that that's a big deal for a lot of people. Yeah. And it's a, and it's a big differentiator between what we do and what others out there doing this procedure do um, is that our, our pain control techniques are second to none. I've never seen any work as well. So, so doctor, you are located in Houston, Texas, and you do have another facility in Dallas. Uh, now, I'm assuming you can receive people from all over, you know, to your facilities. I mean, they can come. I'm sure you're getting them from different states as well, where, you know, they might not have the same procedure or at least the same access. Uh, one of the questions that typically is always, you know, uh, at everybody's mind, uh, these are, I guess, uh, I guess, electives, right? And so... Right. Does insurance cover them or not cover? Do you accept insurance? Those those kinds of things, and or maybe like uh, Medicare, Medicaid, and I'm just gonna you know state those. I'm the I'm from the insurance world, so that's that's always sure. a question. <laughs> sure, no, that's a great question and very important thing that's I'm sure important to your listeners and potential patients. Um, so the short answer is yes. Um, the uh, procedure is covered by all major uh, health insurance plans. Uh, was not the case when I started doing the procedure 23 years ago. It was a very different environment, but the data and how well the procedure worked uh, for many patients uh, became, you know, with any new procedure, there's a, a trial period where uh, insurance companies consider it to be experimental, but we're well past that now. And it's covered by all major insurance plans. And we're in network with pretty much all the major plans as well. Many of the marketplace plans, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, so there are very few things that we don't accept or that we're not in network with. Um, and you're right. We um, So the Fibroid Institute Houston is part of the Fibroid Institute Texas. Uh, so I do have colleagues, um, Dr. Slonim and Dr. Reddy in Dallas, that offer the same uh, procedure, uh, the same, you know, cutting edge pain techniques, uh, pain control techniques, and the same level of expertise uh, in Dallas that we offer here in Houston. And so um uh we do have offices in Dallas and Houston and Houston specifically uh we have clinics uh in in Katy Sugarland uh Clear Lake and just opened a clinic in the Woodlands as well um and there are several locations in Dallas so uh we try to make it as you know easy as we can on patients uh we offer telehealth visits or televisits uh probably half or so of our new patient consultations or via computer, uh, which really makes it easy and convenient for patients. Um, so we just try to make it as easy as we can and go to the patient and offer clinic time if they want to see us in person in their area of town uh, and also uh, via computer. Thank you, doctor. I mean, that, that makes it a relief for a lot of people that watch and listen to now, especially in the, the Texas area, Dallas and Houston. But I, I'm assuming if someone uh, from a different state, they may not have access to a similar process or procedure, they can consult with you guys via Zoom or some or telehealth. And then ultimately, you can book something with them where they can travel down and, and get it done. But you know, uh, it, it, beats, it, it beats the uh, the alternative of not having it done, right? So 
Absolutely. Yeah. We, we, you know, get inquiries from patients out of state, even out of the country all the time. Uh, I know both myself and Dr. Slonem and Reddy in Dallas, uh, you know, the same. Uh, yes, we can certainly treat patients, coordinate patients from out of the state, even out of the country. Um, I know just within the past month or so, I've treated a couple of patients uh, uh, from as far away as Africa uh, who wow. came specifically for the procedure. So it, it is, a you know, the vast majority of our patients come, at least in Houston, come from the Southeast Texas area. Uh, but, you know, I know in Dallas, they, we get referrals from all over Texas and outside of Texas very, very commonly. Well, Texas is a pretty big state. <laughs> it's, exactly. It's, but it's, it's the largest, isn't it? So so it's got yeah, a lot of and, folks. Yeah. And I think, you know, w- this is all that we do. We don't do anything else. Uh, we, we have picked the UFE procedure, which has really been um, our passion. And we're trying to take it to the next level and do it as well as we can and do it better than we've ever done it before. And so, you know, we're very focused on that. And I think that's a big draw for many patients to know that, you know, uh, you know, these clinics are doing this day in and day out. That's all that they do. And I think that's that kind of level of expertise and focus on one thing really, I think, goes a long way in providing the best possible care to the patient. I love it. So, doctor, there's two more things I want to ask because, you know, they tend to always go hand in hand with health. Right. One is nutrition and two is exercise and, 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 and you know, I guess movement. Uh, I mean, certainly, you know, the uterus is is part of its middle section of the body, and so there is a lot of activity. If you're doing some walking, running, sure. any activity, there's there's definitely a problem there. If you have, uh, you know, uh, severe pain or you have some some sort of, uh, of problem, right? Also, is there any nutritious, uh, you know, advice you can give us in terms of like something that can help, you know, with? Is there such a thing, by the way? You know. Um... First, exercise. So exercise, um, you know, is an important part of staying healthy, obviously. Um, And what I've found in terms of how exercise is related to fibroids is I've found that many patients, because of their fibroids, they can't exercise as much or as effectively, especially those that are having the heavy bleeding and they're anemic and their blood counts are low and they get fatigued very easily. They get winded very easily, even young, healthy patients. So it can affect, very much affect a patient's uh, exercise regimen and overall health in those ways. Um, You know, and in terms of nutrition, um, you know, nutrition is also a very important part of a person's overall well-being and health. Um, There have been some attempts to, you know, attribute certain types of diets to fibroids, or fibroid development or higher risks. And, you know, I think there's some validity uh, in, in, in some of those claims, uh, but I've never seen like really strong definitive evidence that there's a strong association. Um, so we know the genetic association, there's been some, you know, more recent uh, uh, associations with some of the hair products uh, that's out there uh, that, that patients have, you know, potentially used in the past. Um, but for the most part, the strongest association is with, uh, uh, you know, genetic and, and, and I think obesity and weight that's kind of indirectly, uh, associated with, uh, uh, with nutrition as well. So that's kind of, that's important as well, because, uh, obese patients tend to produce more estrogen, which tends to produce, 
uh, more rapidly grown fibroids and bigger problems. So that can definitely nutrition works in that way to improve, you know, to increase uh, a patient's uh, symptoms as well. Healthier nutrition, better health, not not obese, therefore less right. chances. But but right. I, but 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 I love you know I think you covered the pre you know uh, workout or like the the, the impact on. Uh, the gym activity or the the, the, the 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 just the fitness part, but but on the flip side, once you get a procedure and you get done, I think your life can get better. Therefore, now you can get and resume your activities and become a much much healthier in all aspects of that matter. So it's actually an important uh, you know piece of uh, absolutely. Uh, Hurricane, <laughs> you, you know you know one of the as I tell patients a lot, there's no way that I could do this procedure day in and day out if it unless it if it didn't work so well. Because, you know, it's just so gratifying. And one reason I have such a strong passion for doing it is because it works so well in so many patients and really restores their life. I can't, I can't tell you there's very few things more gratifying than a patient that comes to me, uh, you know, in follow up a month or so after the procedure or, or two or three months later when we do our routine follow ups and says, I can't thank you enough that, you know, I used to plan my entire life around my cycle. I couldn't do things. I couldn't do things with my family. I couldn't, you know, do things with my friends. Uh, and, and, you know, you've given me my life back and it's, it's amazing. You know, that's, that's what makes it all so worthwhile. Well, you know, there's nothing more than feeling the, the, the gratitude, you know, grateful uh, for doing something that is helping others. I mean, I think that that feeling is unique and in, in its own. And again, you're doing something with passion that you love and helping others. And that's, that's really sweet. And I, I love that. That formula is always a, a success formula. Uh, no it is. It's it. hard. Yeah. It's hard to beat for sure. I feel very fortunate to be able to do what I do and provide the type of care that we provide. Well, I, you know, doctor, thank you so much. I mean, this has been a, a great hour. We've covered quite a bit. I know I follow you on Instagram and I, I, you have a whole team and you guys are very active out there. Uh, you know, so how can we get people to connect with you? Uh, what, where do we send them? Sure. So our, our Instagram, since you mentioned it, our Instagram account <laughs> is fi fibroid free MD. So you can look for fibroid free MD MD. Um, we have a uh, website, which is www.fibroidfree.com. Again, F-I-B-R-O-I-D free.com. Um, and then uh, our number here in Houston to the Fibroid Institute Houston is 713-903-3733. Um, and, you know, if there's anything we can do to educate, to help, to answer questions, we're always more than happy to accept emails or online inquiries. I think, you know, the website is probably the best place to start with that. There are ways that you can connect directly with us through our website. Um, we have a YouTube channel out there as well with some very educational videos that uh, doctors uh, Sloanum, Reddy, and myself have done uh, for patients. So it's all part of providing the type of care that we want to provide. But but thank you for that. And we're always here for patients if they need us. All right. Well, listen, I think I think we have every single way to connect with you and, and make sure that folks watching, listening, and again, the good news all over the world, because you do have patients from all over the world, uh, you know, please feel free to reach out to Dr. You know, Fisher and colleagues. And uh, certainly this is not something, um, uh, there is one question actually I, I did not ask, <laughs> you know, just hit sure. me. You know, we've talked about uh, the, the woman, you know, specifically in this particular episode and uh, women's health. 
But I mean, you know, there is an impact also with with their significant others. Um, you know, is there any type of, um, I guess, connection there in terms of when you talk to, to people? I mean, because sometimes that that's going to be part of the discussion. Like, you know, you're going to have to buy in of both parties, right? Um, do you have that that type of discussion that happens? Just to clarify for people, like, because that may be like, what's up? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, I would say most patients uh, that we consult with are, you know, just the patient, the woman. Uh, but Many patients, it's not unfrequent for them to include their husbands uh, in the consultation, whether that be uh, live, you know, in person or via the computer or telehealth visit. Um, and because, again, uh, you know, fibroids can have such a dramatic impact on a person's life that it affects everybody around them, their families, their friends. I mean, uh, so it is an important uh, discussion to have. And I think you know, many women want to have that support uh, and emotional and physical support from their spouse or significant other. And we certainly encourage that. All right. So that's it. It was, it was bugging me. I forgot about that. Part. <laughs> sure. All right. Well, doctor, thank you so much for being with us. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed this exchange. I've learned a lot myself and I know that a lot of people now have all the ingredients to actually know what to do and how, what to look for and where to go. So, uh, I think with that being said, uh, you know, we have the message out there, folks, there you have it. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for being with us today. Hurricane H, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Honor and pleasure here. So, folks, there you have it. We'll be talking soon. New day, new show. I told you guys this was a must watch and this is the month. So, hey, you know, uh, we're going to spread this word out there. And, uh, yeah, just look forward to, uh, you know, taking it to the next level. Hopefully, you don't have to deal with fibroid. But if you do, we have a solution. Um, that being said, we'll be talking soon. I'm Hurricane Age. Bye for now. <laughs>